You can be opening your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Man, it's good to see you all this morning. All right, that makes one of us. Praise the Lord. No, I'm teasing. Man, I was good. it is good to see you all. I'm excited today. I don't, I'm, I don't have any particular reason that I know of why that is true, but I am. And I've been excited all morning. And, uh, and God just met us in the first service. I pray He does the same. Uh, you know, you never know what God's going to do, right? Amen. And uh, so I'm glad you're here. If you get done before I do, you're free, you know, do what you need to do. But uh, I don't think we'll go too late. But uh, this morning we come to, to what I'm calling the vital element. And uh, one thing that I used to do in, in my uh, quiet times with the Lord, I don't do it all the time now, but uh, this was before I even knew Janice, I did it a lot because I, I was by myself a lot. And uh, I would take a hymn book, and, and uh, I even taught myself to play a little simple flute called a recorder, and I might play a hymn on that while I was reading the lyrics, but I would meditate on the lyrics of a hymn, and one hymn that's always been a favorite of mine, I'm not sure why, I, I still remember in my old Baptist hymn book, it was hymn number 40, I can remember that, but it's called A Mighty Fortress is Our God, it's just called A Mighty Fortress, and it was written by a man named Martin Luther, don't confuse that, Martin Luther King. This guy lived in the 1400s and going into the 1500s. But there's, there's, uh, Martin Luther was a man that uh, he wanted to know Christ. He, he was going to be a lawyer, and uh, one day he's walking down a road, and he almost got hit by lightning and knocked him down, and, and he, it, it scared him, and so he decided to go into the priesthood. Uh, it happens to a lot of people. They almost die, and they think God's calling them to preach. So that's what happened to Martin Luther, and... And uh, so he went into the priesthood, and he's seeking salvation, and he could never find peace, just couldn't find peace to save his life. And uh, so he talked to his superiors, and we'll go to Jerusalem and, and do this pilgrimage on your knees, and he's crawling around on broken glass the whole nine yards, and he still could not find peace. And back in his day, the only people that had access to the scripture were the priests. So he had a Bible, and he's opened it, however they had it then. He's reading it, and he reads these words, The just shall live by faith. And he realized it wasn't about what he did, it was about what God did for him. And so he began to follow God in faith, and that put him at odds with his church, which was the Roman Catholic Church. And so he began to study Scripture and realizing that to know Christ is to know Him by faith, not by deeds. And and, and this caused a revolution in church history. And in fact, we still celebrate uh, him nailing the 95 Theses to the wall at Wittenberg, Germany, uh, where he had 95 reasons uh, what the Catholics were teaching were wrong and what the Scripture said was right. And uh, he became a living martyr. We consider him a martyr, though he was never put to death. But he was put into exile and he had to go away. But here's a part of the story that you may not know. A hundred years before him was a man named John, and it's pronounced Hus, H-U-S. Uh, it's been anglicized into Hus, H-U-S-S. It was my very first pastor's name. His name was John Hus, and he was a descendant of John Hus. But he was Czechoslovakian. He lived in the 1300s into the 1400s. Martin Luther lived mid-1400s to mid-1500s. And they put John Hus to the stake to die because he, like Martin Luther, protested what what he saw as error in the church, and in that day they ruled everything. And so they tied him to a stake, and they were setting him on fire. And John Hus said this from that stake, because Hus in Czechoslovakia means goose. His name meant goose. And he said, 
You, today you burn this goose, but within a hundred years, God will rise up a swan that you will neither be able neither to silence nor kill. On Martin Luther's coat of arms is a swan. A hundred years later, John, uh, after John Hus died, uh, God raised up Martin Luther. And Martin Luther wrote a hymn, one of my favorite hymns that I, I studied and memorized and, and a whole bunch of stuff. And I love this hymn so much, I talked my wife into coming down the aisle at our wedding to this hymn. Now that's something, isn't it? She didn't come down to the wedding march or here comes the bride or ain't she beautiful or nothing like that. She came down the aisle to a hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And let me tell you what John, I mean what Martin Luther wrote. And I want you to think about his life. He's under threat of death. He's in exile. Satan has tried to kill him. His own religion has tried to kill him. And he wrote these words. A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amidst the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great. And armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing. Don't ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name. From age to age the same. And he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. One little word will fell him. For lo, his uh, his rage we can't endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And that word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them, abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, this body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Listen, the only reason Martin Luther was able to endure the, the, the sufferings that he endured and the attacks of our enemy against him was because of his faith and trust in God and the life that he lived and I don't know if you realize it or not, but you're in a fight. You're in a battle. You're in a war. This whole thing in Ephesians, we've called it prepare for battle. We've come to the toward the end of the book where we put on armor and we learned about this armor. But today I want to talk about the vital element in all of this armor. And and I'll tell you, I struggle with the title. I don't usually, you know, I got five sermons, but I have about a thousand titles. And, and so I, 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 I was trying to express what I wanted to say to you today. And, and I wanted to say the essential element, the most important element, the exclusive element. None of that kind of fits. I did what all preachers do when they can't think of a word. They get out their thesaurus. That's not a dinosaur. It's a book. And uh, it's got words that mean the same thing but, but are different words. And I'm looking through that. And I came on this word vital. And you know what the word vital means. It means it is necessary for life. It's... it's, it's it's, you know, last week we had a three-day shutdown of the government and non-essential personnel didn't have to show up. That's always confused me. If you're non-essential, why do you have a job? I just don't understand that. It doesn't make sense to me, but I get it. My, my wife 
has a job similar to that. She's essential. She has to go when everybody else can stay home. But, but, uh, but anyway, I, I get what it means. It, for that day, it's not important that you show up, but it is that you show up later. But anyway, that word vital means it's got to be. And if you don't have that, it's going to kill you. It, vital has this root of the word life. It is very life itself. And when I'm looking at the passage we want to look at today, I realized that it was vital. I came up with a great illustration, but I came up with it too late to do anything about it. I asked around, even in the ninth hour, and uh, I found out that, or eleventh hour, I think you should say, uh, and Johnny Bishop had one. I needed a, a car motor that wasn't in a car, and I was going to put it on a, on a car, an a, a engine mount, and just have it right up here, because I want to illustrate this armor thing with that. Because you got to imagine it now, and I hope you got a good imagination. you got a car motor sitting here on this big apparatus, and it's just sitting there. And I could tell you all about that car engine. Let's just pretend that it's a, it's a 350 engine, uh, eight cylinders. It's capable of, I'm just guessing at this so mechanics don't get on me later, 250 horsepower can propel a car down the road 210 miles an hour in the right configuration. And that motor sits here on a motor mount. Or an engine mount. And it's pointless. It's useless. You say, that's right. you got to have a car surrounding it. So you put on the car. Well, that's the armor. Guess what? It's still useless. Because you got to get some gas in that thing. And the gas is vital. Now, I know you need spark plugs and wires and batteries and oil. All that. Don't come tell me all that later. I know. Just go with me here with the basics. You've got the engine. God, the Holy Spirit, has come to live in you. You've got the armor. But you need something vital. And it's found in Ephesians 6, at the very first phrase of verse 18. Would you stand with me? We'll read it together. Praying at all times in the Spirit. Praying at all times in the Spirit. Would you join me in prayer right now? Father God, in Jesus' name, we step in front of the throne of, that is on high there in heaven where you are seated. And between us and thee is the mercy seat where Jesus' blood sits today, still alive, still speaking for us. And by that blood, we enter to the throne of grace to boldly ask for help in this time of need. Lord, in Jesus' name, right now, we ask that your spirit would open our eyes to behold wonderful things out of your word. And that, Lord, we would be given the courage and we would exercise the courage to obey what you show us. And, Lord, today, we ask that you would send revival to us. But, Lord, I have to only pray that you would send revival to me. And I pray each person here would ask you to send revival to them. Lord, may our obedience be complete. May our devotion be complete. As Lord, we pray that today you would be glorified in your body, the church. That you would send help that we need so desperately. For you've given us a job we cannot do. And apart from your help, we are hopeless. But with your help, we are more than conquerors through him who lives in us. And even as Martin Luther wrote that hymn, Lord, we understand that just at the name of Jesus... The mightiest enemy we have, Satan himself, falls to the side. For he cannot stand before your holy name. He cannot stand before your power and authority.
And Lord, we do not ask for ourselves. We do not ask for a comfortable life or an easy life. We ask only that thy will be done. And that you would be glorified through us, through the church, through your body, your bride, your building. God, that we would be the church in front of you. And that we would please the Father in all that we say and do. And I ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Thank you. Young, sit down for a minute. Here's what I want you to make sure you take home with you today. The very next thing. Without prayer, the armor just rusts. Without prayer, the armor just rusts. I... I feel, I'm afraid that, I'm so excited about this and I, I want to help you understand because I feel like that you think as I did for a long time and, and as we kind of, when we just think of things generally and we don't get into detail about it, we, we kind of say things like, well, I got to put on my armor today. I, I need to get armored up. But here's the real fact of the matter. Once you put on the armor, you never take it off. Because you are never not in a battle. You are never out of harm's way. You are never in any place or any time or any circumstance where Satan is not trying to steal, kill, and destroy you. And so you must be armored up and suited up. I thought about this uh, uh, in the first service that I was saying this, and I didn't use this illustration, but I'm going to use it now. I'll tell you why in just a second. Uh, when, when we first went into uh, Iraq, yes, Iran, Iraq, in that war, I remember seeing things that said, oh, you're complaining about whatever in your life. Remember these men. And it showed our, our Marines and our soldiers sleeping under Humvees in full body armor. But after, after service, I didn't say that. And a guy came up to me and he said, I was just reading about putting on the armor. And I read that the Roman soldiers slept in their armor. You think about this. As Paul wrote this, he's chained to a Roman guard. They had to switch them out. But there was a time he went to sleep and he's watching this Roman guard in full armor sleeping beside him in full armor. In case Paul tries to get away, in case somebody came in to break Paul free. He's ready. He's got every weapon at his disposal. Ready to fight in a moment's notice. Because you never know when the enemy's going to come. I want to remind you that as as Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Satan showed up. The Bible says Judas came into the garden and the... And the verses before that said, Satan having entered Judas. And Satan himself enters the garden where Jesus is praying. As he prays, not my will, but thine be done. And Satan shows up even in the garden of Gethsemane, even to the Son of Man, to try to pull him off and distract him from what God's will is. How much more important is it for you and I to remember that we always have on the armor? Because I'll tell you another little secret you might not have thought about. You can't put on the armor. God has to put it on you. I mean, you can't put on a helmet of salvation, can you? Only God can do that for you. You can't wield the sword of the Spirit because it takes the Holy Spirit to understand the Word of God. You can't have the shield of faith for the Bible says that faith is a gift from God. Right? You don't have truth in yourself as you put on a belt of truth. You certainly don't have righteousness as the best breastplate of righteousness is put on you because it's not your righteousness, it's Christ's righteousness. And so the armor you're wearing, God put it on you. And God is not going to take it off because God expects you to be engaged in the battle until he calls you home. And you can never take it off. So what you need to do is learn how to use it. Because if you don't know how to use it, it gets a little heavy. It's clunking around. What's wrong with you? Well, I got all this stuff on me. I don't know what to do with it. And here's the vital element. Praying at all times in the Spirit. 
The very next phrase, he tells us what to do. By the way, as we go through that verse, and we'll, I don't know how much we'll do next week. I'm just doing this part today. We'll see that he says the word prayer four times just in verse 18. And so prayer is obviously extremely important. And I want you to see that the weapon is not enough. We've got these powerful weapons at our disposal. I mean, think about it. I, I've already gone through them, but a belt of truth. You know the truth. You don't have to figure that out. God's given it to you. He's given you the truth in Jesus Christ. You, you have that breastplate of righteousness. It's not that you're right, that Christ is right through you and in you, and he gives you his own righteousness. You have your shoes, the preparation to preach the gospel. So many times we say, oh, well, we're a mission church. Really? Well, yeah, we give a lot of money to missions. Well, that's good, and I'm glad we do. My kids are benefits of that. But what about you? What kind of mission are you? If I handed everybody a sheet of paper, and on it was a form where next week you had to come back, what if I did it today, and you had to write on there about a time this week where you tried to have a gospel conversation with somebody, even if you didn't get around to telling them about Jesus, but at least you tried. Don't raise your hand. How many of you be ready to write something down and hand it in? I don't raise your hand. I don't know if anybody did. I'm not looking. My point is this. If our feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, then why aren't we preaching the gospel of peace where we go? We can't say we're missionary if we're not missionaries. Right? Okay, well, you're getting the point. So God puts this armor on it. Honest, we have the shield of faith. We have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And it's all ours to use, but it's like that car engine with a car wrapped around it. That's not enough. Now we have to have something to power that motor, that engine. And so our weapons are not enough if they're not locked and loaded and ready to use. I mean, just in case you don't know this, if, if, you, if you ever have to use a weapon, don't show it to anybody unless you're ready to use it. Don't ever try to scare somebody with a weapon. You can't go, look out, devil, I got a sword. No, you just pull out and cut him. Because if you start showing it to him, he'll disarm you and use it against you. That's just a self-defense thing. If you ever show a weapon, you better be using it. The same thing's true in the spiritual life. Well, I got a weapon. I got a weapon. Boo. <laughs> That's not doing anybody any good. You got to use it. You got to use that helmet of salvation. You got to use that breastplate, Ryan. You got to use that belt of truth, your preparation of gospel of peace, the, the sword, the shield. You got to go use it, but you can't use it by your own wisdom because you're not smart enough. And so you've got to come to a place of prayer. It, listen. The use cannot be sporadic. That's the second thing I want you to catch. Not only is the weapon not enough, its use cannot be sporadic. I know I've already been talking about it, but I want to talk about it some more. This is not a sometimey thing. That's, that's Gullah from Charleston. Uh, they said a woman's a sometimey thing. That means a woman changes a lot. You, you can't use the weapon sometimes. It's got to be all the time. I didn't mean to offend anybody about that. It's just a Gullah expression. Sorry about that. But... But, but the, the weapons have to be constantly in use. But there is no use of them without prayer. If you're not praying, you're not using them. There's never a time where they cannot be in use because prayer is the air we breathe and it's the complete strategy of our warfare. 
Prayer is the complete strategy of our warfare. If you're not praying, there's no power. Prayer, with prayer comes power, power. So a lot of prayer, a lot of power. No prayer, no power. And is that black and white? If you're praying, God is giving you power. It is the complete strategy of our warfare. See, here, we've come up with some good ideas. But those ideas are meaningless. Prayer is God's strategy. That is what we have to do. I, I'll come back to say some more about that in a minute. Because I want you to see the nature of the, of the weapons cannot be altered. These are spiritual weapons that have to be used spiritually. God did not put physical weapons in our hands to use physically. At the beginning of this whole passage we've been studying says this. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but spiritual. That we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against powers and, and principalities and rulers of darkness in high places. And, 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 and so our weapon is a spiritual weapon to be wielded in prayer. And if we are wielding it physically it's no good. It's got to be wielded spiritually in prayer. And, and that... In the spirit means in the, in the nature and the will of God. Spiritual praying is praying in Jesus' name according to his nature and his will. In other words, God may have something for me that looks physical, but God has a spiritual thing for it. Let me, let me illustrate what I'm trying to say. You may need a car. So you ask God for a Ferrari. Now, you just need affordable transportation. You don't need a Ferrari. Let me illustrate it even further. My brother-in-law, growing up, his father had a boat called a Boston Whaler. You're not familiar with boats. Pretty nice boat. And they used to, they uh, had a house on a lake, and they used to go fishing and skiing and all that stuff out on the lake. Well, years went by, and the boat wasn't used, and it kind of deteriorated, and my Brother-in-law got a little bit older, and he was a man. His brothers were men. And he goes to his dad, and he said, Dad, I want the Boston Whaler, and I'm going to spend the money to fix it up. But I want to have control of it if I do that, and my brothers have to ask me to use it. Now, I'll let them use it, but they got to ask me. They can't. So I'm going to take possession. And his dad agreed, so he got the boat. So he fixed it all up. So they used it and, and you know, went on. Well, one day my brother-in-law reads in a Baptist paper there in the state of South Carolina about a pastor who needed a Boston whaler. He asked for that boat by name. It's kind of odd. I would have just said a boat, but for whatever reason, it said that. So my brother-in-law saw that and he said, hmm, maybe the Lord wants me to give this guy a boat. So he called the person in charge and said, tell me why this guy needs a boat. Because a preacher might could have, you know, gotten by with a canoe. He wanted to make sure what's going on here. And the man told him, said, well, he has a church on a lake. And, and to get around to everybody, it'd take him three hours to drive around the lake. But if he gets in a boat, he can get to anybody's house within 30 minutes. And he said, okay, well, I've got a boat for him. Because if he's just got a skiing ministry, no. But if that's what he's doing, you know, that's what, you know, that's what Baptists do. We have a hunting ministry, you know what I mean? And so, so he said, I've got the boat. The guy, he said, where do you want me to bring it? And he said, oh, we'll bring it down to this office and, and we'll, we'll have a photographer there and we'll get your name, we'll take a picture, we'll put it in the paper. He said, no, you won't. He said, if, if he needs the boat, he can have the boat. I don't want, I don't want anybody to know I gave it. Now, here, here's the point. 
the nature of God is to use things for God's glory, right? And his will. And it was a nice boat. Now, if my brother had been giving it away so he could have gotten credit in the world's eyes that, oh, he's a generous fella, which he is, then that's pointless. He did that in a spiritual way to a spiritual need, even though it was a boat on a lake. Because I can tell you, I didn't go, I've never gone visiting to people that needed a visit in a boat. I just never. If I'm in a boat, I'm having fun. I'm just telling you, okay? But this guy needed it to do ministry, and he, and, and he asked, and God supplied that through my brother-in-law. I don't know what your need is, so sometimes something that to the world may look like a luxury may be a need, but it better be in the will of God. And let me just tell you how important that is. I've already mentioned Jesus is praying in Gethsemane and Satan shows up. What was he praying? Lord, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, thine be done. He's asking for God's will and according to God's nature. And God said, this is the only way. You know we set the decree. Sin brings death and somebody's got to die. If you don't die, they all go to hell. And he said, then I'll go to the cross. And he went to the cross for me and for you. But he had to wrestle that through in prayer. How much more important is it that you and I, as we wage war against our enemy in this world, that we pray in God's will? Because for my own children, I want to pray for their safety. Nobody's guaranteed safety. I want to pray for their well-being. Nobody's guaranteed well-being. Jesus himself suffered. Jesus himself went to a cross. And we're not better than him. God's not going to bless us beyond anything. He may. God, you know, I always love it when God blesses somebody that really knows what to do with it. One time my mom asked, said to me, why, or why wouldn't the Lord let us have money? I said, because you wouldn't know what to do with it. You wouldn't use it for his glory. He couldn't trust you with it. I did, I've been a prophet a long time. I didn't speak to my parents like that. God can't trust you with money. That's why I can give you money. I love it when God can trust somebody with money and they use it for God's glory. That's a great thing. That's a wonderful thing. And so it is in prayer. The nature of our praying can't be altered. We can't come to God and say, bless us so we'll be great. We got to say, God, bless us so your name will be great. We're here to glorify God, to lift up God, that we might talk about his glory and what he's done for us. The nature of it can't be altered. But I, I need you to understand that this struggle is real. In Luke 18.1, and you don't have to turn there, but let me read that to you. And by the way, this is not just an hour-long commercial for the prayer uh, class, but I do hope you'll come and take that. But it says, And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Now, what should they always be doing? Praying. And it says he told them a parable to show them that they ought always to pray and not do what? Lose heart or faint if you got King James. And not lose heart. So now just turn it around. If you're not praying, you're losing heart. If you're not praying, you'll give up. If you're not praying, you'll quit. If you're not praying, you won't be able to take it. And so Jesus is trying to get his disciples to understand. You better pray and you better pray and you better pray. Because if you don't, you're going to lose heart. What did Jesus say to the disciples as they fell asleep in the garden of Gethsemane while he's praying? He said... The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. He wasn't saying, oh, I get it, you're tired, you're falling asleep. What he was saying is, dude, you're about to go through a trial. I'm going through a trial, you're going to go through a trial. And if you don't pray, if you don't get your spirit strengthened in God in prayer, you're going to fail because your flesh is weak. And then Judas showed up, and what did the disciples do? Ran. What did Jesus do? He stood up and followed the will of God. Because he spent those hours in prayer. 
See, in our Baptist hymn book, we sing a song called Sweet Hour of Prayer. And I would hesitate to ask anybody to raise their hand who's spent an uninterrupted hour in your life in prayer. Some of you would be able to raise your hand. Most of you would not. So we talk about prayer, but we don't pray. We, we, we learn about prayer, but we don't pray. And I want you to understand that God has given you a lot of weapons. I mean, in the book of Ephesians, I, there's 24 things we've learned in Ephesians, at least, that God has given us. Listen to this. It's going to take me a minute to go through it, but, but catch this. First of all, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Chapter 1, verse 3. Then he has chosen us, predestined us, adopted us as children. Chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. He's lavished us with his grace. Chapter 1 and verse 6. Also verse 8 and also chapter 2, verse 7. He's redeemed and forgiven us. Chapter 1, verse 7. Uh, chapter 4, verse 32. He's given the mystery of his will. We can know that in chapter 1, verse 9. Chapter 3, verse 4 through 6. We receive an inheritance from our Father. In chapter 1, verse 11, we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Chapter 1, verse 13 to 14, and chapter 4, verse 30. He's greatly, we are greatly loved by God. Chapter 2, verse 4, chapter 5, verse 25. We're made alive with a new life. Chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. We, we are the workmanship of Christ, created by Him for doing good works. Chapter 2, verse 10. We're given God's own peace. Chapter 2, verse 14. We're made one with Christ and with every other believer in His body. Chapter 2, verses 13 through 19. Chapter 3, verse 4. And six. We're made citizens of God's kingdom and members of his family. Chapter 2, verse 19. We're built into God's own temple and the dwelling place uh, of, uh, of God's own kingdom and, and, uh, and the dwelling place of his spirit. Chapter 2, verses 20 and 22. We're given boldness and confident access to God, chapter 3, verse 12. We're made powerful beyond imagination, chapter 3, verse 20. We're given the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, uh, uh, in chapter 4, verse 3. Individually and uniquely gifted by Christ himself, chapter 4, verse 7. We're blessed with special gifted leaders to equip us to do the work of the ministry, chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. We're taught by Jesus Christ himself, chapter 4, verse 20 and 21. We're given a new self in God's likeness, chapter 4, verse 24. We are made light in chapter 5, verse 30. We're offered the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 5, verse 18. We're given instruction and resources to make all relationships with others what God intends them to be. Chapter 5, verses 21 through chapter 6, verse 9. And we're given God's full armor to make us invincible against Satan and his demonic forces in chapter 6, verses 10 to 17. And here's the problem. After all those gifts, we tend to become self-confident. We got this handled, got this figured out, and we get spiritual arrogance. I got it. We come up with techniques. We come up with plans and ideas, and sounds real good. And then we ask God to bless it. The making of your own plans is idolatry, and asking God to bless it is blasphemy. You, we need to go to God and say, God, what would you have us to do? And then we do that. Right? And so when we become, I don't know how the disciples did it. I mean, they never went to a conference. They never read a book by a successful pastor telling everybody else how to do it. I don't think they even had a conference on prayer except what Jesus told them. And the Pharisees, it says, took note of them because they were ignorant and unlearned men. 
And yet the power of God rested on them. So when you arrested them and beat them and put them in prison, when they were set free, they went back to the church rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for his namesake. And here's what they prayed. Lord, consider the sufferings of your servants and how the enemy has come against us. And they didn't say, now deliver us from our enemy. They said, grant us your power that we might speak your word with boldness. They didn't ask for relief. They asked for another chance to go out there and punch the enemy again. We don't sing onward Christian soldiers marching us to war. We sing onward Christian soldiers with the cross hid behind the door. Because we don't want to go and confront the culture with the truth of Jesus Christ. Listen, we live in a free and prosperous society and it makes us feel secure. And we're presuming on our ability instead of on God's grace. There may come a time in this country in our lifetime where you're going to be crying out to God. I'm telling you the things that we get mad about and, and, and argue about, the rest of the world's going, what? Because they all, the rest of the world lives under that kind of stuff that we are free from. And we assume that God likes us better for some reason, but he doesn't. He's just blessed us, and so we have a greater thing to answer for. And so we, we, we are... are We confuse our human ability and human resources to God's blessing. And that's not what God's about. See, Ephesians starts this book telling us everything God has given us. And page after page after page, we've seen these unbelievable, mighty spiritual blessings. And he starts by lifting us up and he comes to the end of the book and he drags us to our knees. And says, now don't let all that become a hindrance, let that become... A weapon of warfare. And get on your knees and spiritually pray that God would use everything he's given you in your life. As an individual and as a church. To wage war against our enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And if we don't do that. Then we're going to fail in what God has given us to do. The armor is not automatic. It's not magical. God put it on us. For us to wield it in warfare. And there's nothing magic about it. It's just the way it's got to be. It, it, we've got to take it our own and use it supernaturally to produce supernatural results. Because every spiritual gift God gave us without his spirit empowering it comes to nothing. It's just like a motor sitting here on an engine mount with no gas and no car. Looks good. It's got a lot of potential. Well, let's put it in a car. You can put it in a car and wow, that car looks good. And that's got a powerful motor in it. But it'll sit there and rust until you put gas to it. And then when you put gas to it, man, you can go some places. Prayer is that. So what can you do this week? It's real simple. I'm just going to repeat the sermon. Put on the armor and prayer. I, there's two, two passages of Scripture I recommend you praying as a dedicatory prayer to God. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I quote it all the time. You know, you'll get sick of hearing me talk about Romans 12, 1 and 2 and Galatians 2, 20. It's a few other verses that just are so key and essential to us. 
I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That's your reasonable service of worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can prove what the good, perfect, and acceptable will of God is. You ought to go to God in prayer and say, God, I give you my body, and I die to self, and I live to you. You say, I'm already saved. I didn't talk about getting saved. He wrote that to save people. He said, present your body a living sacrifice. And you may have to do that more than once because that's something you do. And we tend to want to jump off the altar when it gets hot, don't we? But we get up on that altar and we let the fire consume us and we find out our lives can glorify God. And the other one is this one about the armor. You need to have that on. And even if I understand you're saved, God put it on you, but you ought to acknowledge that before God in prayer, I think. And say, God, thank you that you've given me the belt of truth. Thank you you've given me the breastplate of righteousness. Thank you that my feet can be ready to go and preach the gospel. Thank you for the helmet of salvation. I was saved, I am saved, I'm going to be saved. Thank you for the shield of faith that's a gift of you. That I can quench all Satan's attacks against me, every fiery dart. And thank you for this word of God, the sword of the spirit, that I can wield it in an attack against Satan's temptations and Satan's work in other people's lives. But Lord, in all of this, none of it will mean anything without prayer. And may your will be done in my life. And when you start praying like that, God's going to start shaking some stuff up. Secondly, wield the weapon all the time in prayer. Don't ever put it up. Don't ever sheath your sword. Wield the weapons in prayer all the time. And thirdly, pray in the Spirit. Say, well, how do I pray in the Spirit? Let me give you a little foretaste of the class. Just pray God's words back to Him. Just pray His words back to Him. When I look down... I see in verse 10, which you have already covered, finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. So you go to the Lord and say, God, thank you that I can be strong in you. Thank you that I need to be strengthened by your might. May you be mighty through me. I've mentioned that we say we're a missionary church, and we are. Then go to Psalm 2, where God says that he's given the nations of the world to his son to make them his footstool. So start praying, hey God, you said... That the nations of the world would become the footstool of Jesus. We're asking for this nation and this nation and this nation. I'm asking for my house. I'm asking for my street. I'm asking for my neighborhood. I'm asking for my city. I'm asking for my state. I'm asking for my country. I'm asking for my world. That you said you would give to your son. And I don't want it for me. I want it for him. Use me to win this place to Jesus. Because then he's glorified. Let me illustrate that just one second. I tell my son, son, Saturday, I'm going to take you fishing. He's eight years old. He's not now, but let's pretend. He's eight years old. Son, Saturday, I'll take you fishing. Yay, Daddy. And he shows up with a rod and reel and his little tackle box. Daddy, I'm ready to go fishing. I said, well, go. He said, but Dad, I thought, I thought we were going together. Well, I gave you a rod and reel. I gave you some tackle. Go fishing. Well, Dad, I can't get to the pond unless you, unless you ride me down there. Oh, it's not that far. You can walk. Daddy, you said you would take me fishing. You're right, son, I did. I got to keep my word. God wrote it. He's got to put up with it. Now, God is not cruel, but when he does that to us, he's saying, pray a little bit more. Pray a little bit more. Pray a little bit more. Oh, that sounds so good. Of course, I'll take you fishing. And we'll catch some big old fish for the glory of God. Follow me, because I'll make you fishers of men.
Pray at all times in the Spirit.